Ezekiel chapter 2. Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, and whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks. For they are a rebellious house, and you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear. For they are a rebellious house. What I want to do is just stop and deal with this section for a, a, a little bit tonight, and then we're going to continue on to the rest of the chapter, and hopefully come real close to finishing chapter 2 tonight. But I just, as I was praying over this section, I really felt like God wanted me to take you back to a study. And we're not going to go into great detail because there's not enough time to do that. But we're going to do a very a quick, in-depth study of the history of the nation of Israel. And the fact that, remember, Ezekiel was told that, here, I want you to preach to these people. But he describes them over and over as a what kind of people? Rebellious people. Now, keep in mind that as we look at the nation of Israel, and you're going to see their wickedness, Keep in mind that we have the same problem. Don't fall into that trap of thinking, boy, they were some really bad people. Because you're going to see when we get to chapter 9, or sorry, chapter 10 of Romans, we're all alike. We're all guilty because of sin. We're all rebellious deep within us. Apart from Christ, this is who we are as well. But I want to take you back to Genesis chapter 12, a very familiar passage to many people. But I want to show you that actually, if you look closely at Genesis chapter 12, you'll see that Abraham, Father Abraham, was rebellious, even in his call of God. A lot of people look at this passage fondly, and it's a great passage. But there's something here that a lot of people have missed, and I want to kind of take some time to pull it out for you. It says in, in, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, some of your translations say the Lord had said to Abram. And by the way, that's a very good translation. If you even notice here in the ESV, if you have an English Standard Version like I do, even though it doesn't say had said, down in the bottom you'll see a little note that says or had said. Actually, in the, in the original language, had said is a very good translation of what happens here. It says, now the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I'll make you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram, Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran and set out to go to the land of Canaan. When, and when they came to the land of Canaan, we'll stop right there. So look closely again here. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your people, right? Leave your father's house and come to a land that I'll show you. Now, when we read this, a lot of people think this is the call of Abraham. Actually, it's not the call of Abraham. This is the reminder of the call of Abraham. Actually, when he leaves here in chapter 12, where are they leaving from, according to what we just read? 
They set out from Haran. Well, actually, when God called Abram, he wasn't in Haran. He was in the Ur of the Chaldeans, and we're going to see that. Actually, put a bookmark here in Genesis chapter uh, 12, and go back with me to Acts chapter 7. Let me show you. In, in Stephen's sermon about the history of the nation of Israel, in Acts chapter 7, in verses 1 through 4, you'll see that he says that when God called him, it wasn't in Haran, it was in the Ur of the Chaldeans, which is a different place. Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So here we get a little more information here. When God called Abraham, he was Abram at the time, was he in Haran? No, he was in the Ur of the Chaldeans in Mesopotamia. And what were God's instructions to Abram? He was to leave who? His family. Leave your family and come to a land that I'll show you. Did he do that? No, he brought his father with him. Actually, you'll see that. Go back to, how did you put a bookmark in Genesis 12? Back up to Genesis chapter 11 and look at verses 31 and 32. In Genesis chapter 11, verses 31 and 32, Terah, this is Abram's father, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from the Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now Genesis 12 makes a whole lot more sense, doesn't it? The Lord had said to Abram, leave your family and come to a land that I'll show you. He disobeyed. He took family with him, and then they stopped in Haran, and they settled there when God had said, come to a land that I'll show you. So during that time they're there, his father dies, and then God reminds him of his call, if you will, and he leaves Haran. Does he leave his family totally like he was supposed to? No, he still brings the nephew, Lot, with him. And if you know the history of the nation of Israel and what happened, there came a point where he and Lot had a little squabble over land, and they had to finally separate. God finally got him to the place where God wanted him to be, where it was just him. Oh, a lot of you may not know this, but Lot, as they separated, went to Sodom and Gomorrah. And as you know, all the stuff that happened and how God brought the judgment on that city and that nation and everything. When Lot runs, his wife, as you know, looks back, and she's turned to a pillar of salt. A lot of people don't know this, but when he goes, he actually, the angels say, come with us. And he goes, look, let's just go to the mountain. And they didn't want to even listen to what the angels were saying to where to go. And they picked where they wanted to go. And while he's there, his daughters get him drunk. And they sleep with him. And he makes babies with his daughters while he's drunk. And do you realize that his two sons were the two enemies, of, became the enemies of Israel, the nations of Moab and the Ammonites. Isn't that amazing? Even in the call of Abram, there's disobedience. Oh, let's jump ahead. Let's go to Acts chapter 7 and look at verses 35 through 43. In Stephen's message again, as he was preaching about the history of Israel, on his way to pointing to Jesus. By the way, this sermon that Stephen is preaching is his last one. 
Because by the time he gets to the end of this sermon, everybody that he's preaching to kills him. Acts chapter 7, verses 35 through 43. And Stephen says, This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but they thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And as for this Moses who led us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." Now we've jumped way ahead. I could take a lot of time and show you the rebellion in the people of Israel all the way through. But when we get to the time of Moses and God sent Moses and the miracles that he did with the plagues on Egypt and all the signs and the wonders that showed that God was with him in the Red Sea, what was the reaction of the nation of Israel to God's one that he sent, this man Moses? They rejected him. Who made you ruler over us? Let's go back. Yeah, the answer is God. But they rejected him as well and began to worship during those 40 years in the wilderness, all other gods that weren't gods. Not only did they reject Moses, the Bible says they also killed the prophets that God sent to them. Not just Moses, but other prophets. Go to Matthew 23. By the way, keep a bookmark in Acts 7. We're coming back there. Go to Matthew 23. Well, you're done with the bookmark in Genesis, so you can let that finger go. Matthew 23, look at verses 29 through 39. Listen to what Jesus said. Matthew 23, 29 through 39. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. Some of you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these, will come up, all these things will come upon this generation. Now here again, you see God sent the prophets, they murdered them. And he says to them, not only that, you're going to keep killing the people that God sends to you, just like the, your forefathers did. Go back to Acts 7. Look at verses 51 through 53. And you'll notice, not only did they kill the prophets, they also killed the Son of God. You stiff-necked into people, or stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Don't let anybody tell you that's not possible. It's very possible. That's why the Bible says, don't harden your hearts when He calls. 
You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Oh, by the way, that's pretty much what got him killed right there. So let me show you one more place. Go to Luke 20. Verses 9 through 18. Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. Jesus is speaking and it says, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to the tenants, and he went to another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, Then what then is, is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Here Jesus tells them, this is what you've done, and this is what you're going to do. This is what's going to happen to you. So folks, let's just kind of let this sink in for a minute. Remember, Ezekiel's being told in the midst of the history. We, we've just given you a broad brush of the history of Israel. Ezekiel's in the middle of that time period where they're killing the prophets and rejecting those sent to him. If you do a study of Christian history and tradition, Isaiah was most likely put inside a log and then they cut the log in half. And it wasn't one of those magic tricks where the person gets back up and says, ta-da. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about those that were sawn in two. And I believe without question, it's referring to Isaiah. Ezekiel's in this time period and he's told by God, you say, thus says the Lord, and just understand you're going to be speaking to a rebellious people. And whether they listen or don't listen, you just say what I tell you to say. Now, we're going to deal more with that later in our study tonight. But I'm going to ask you this question. As you've already heard me teach in other studies and also already in this study, and we're going to look into more detail again tonight. God's not done with Israel. We would agree with that, right? The Bible is very clear that he's not done. And if you're wavering on that, that's okay. Stick with the study tonight. We're going to show you how the Bible is very clear he's not done with Israel. But I'm going to ask you a question then. If this is how rebellious they are, where they reject someone like Moses that God sent, and even with the miracles, and the prophets, and his own son, why is God not done with them? Why do they get another chance in the future when other nations don't? Why, why is Israel still here? I knew you would know this answer, so I'm proud of you. There are actually two main issues. One is because God made promises to the patriarchs and he has to fulfill them or he's no longer God. The Bible's very clear. God cannot lie. Folks, let me just tell you something. Whenever you read the Old Testament, remind yourself of that scripture before you start reading. God who cannot lie. And then read what the Old Testament says of what's to happen in the future. And then it'll keep you from reading it symbolically. 
But there's a second reason. God is passionate about his glory. He is passionate about his glory. If you think back to when Moses was there and they were being rebellious at that time, and God said, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to wipe them out right now, and I'll start over with you. Moses, knowing the heart of God, said, it wouldn't look good for you if you did that. Because then everybody that's heard about how you were able to get them out of Egypt and did all those signs and the parting of the Red Sea, if they all died in the wilderness, it would make it look like you weren't able to finish what you started. God pretty much responds to Moses, you know me well. You know me well. And he didn't wipe them all out. Not because he couldn't. He could have started over with Moses. But because he's passionate about his glory, and you're going to see that in just a little bit. Go to Malachi chapter 3. That's one of my favorite passages that just reminds me of the fact that God's not done with Israel. In Malachi chapter 3, last book of the Old Testament, look at verse 6. Malachi chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 6 and 7. God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have returned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And then it goes into, he deals with the fact of how they've been robbing him. But that's another study for another time. But look at what he says. He says, I, the Lord, don't change. That's why Israel still exists. Does he have every right to wipe them off the face of the earth? Yes. Had they been less wicked than everybody else? I would even suggest maybe in some ways more wicked. The Bible actually says, to whom much is given, much is required. They have had more light given to them in God's revelation of his word and his prophets and all the people sent to them. They know the truth more than the other nations that maybe don't and worship false gods. They actually are even more guilty if you were. But at the same time, they exist because God doesn't change. And he made promises. Go to Romans chapter 11. It was interesting. I think Romans chapter 11 is one of the most clear chapters in all the book of the Bible. And I made that statement to a pastor about a year or two ago. And this is what he said to me. He said, you're the first person I have ever heard say that Romans 11 was understandable. Isn't that crazy? Listen to Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. I ask then, Paul speaking, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what's God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect, meaning the church, obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them the spirit of stupor, the eyes that would see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. 
So I ask again, if you will, did they, meaning the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. You've heard me teach you on that before. Deuteronomy 32, 21, God told them way, way back, you're going to worship other gods that aren't gods to make me jealous. I'm going to take a people you don't consider a people and make you jealous. God's salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Do you see it? They're not, God's not done with Israel. They're going to be brought back in. Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, Paul says, I magnify my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, he then in the next verses deals with that whole, well, they were grafted off so I could be grafted in. And he says, yeah, that's true. They were grafted off because of unbelief. And you were grafted in as a wild olive shoot into God's plan in his tree. He said, but don't think you're better than them. Because if they were cut off because of unbelief, so can you two be. And God's able even better to, as a natural olive branch to bring them back into the tree. He's what he's saying. But go to verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel, that's all Israel that's left at the end of the tribulation period, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He'll banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, the Jews are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Did you catch that? The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order, by the, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that He have, may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways! For who's known the mind of the Lord, or who's been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. In this whole section of Scripture, chapters 9, chapters 10, and chapter 11, Paul's been dealing with this deep, deep theology about God's plan for Israel and the church and all this. But folks, all the way through it, he just simply says, it's always been about the people of Israel. This church age that we're in, is it about us or is it about Israel? It's really about Israel. He saved us to make Israel jealous. The purpose of the church is not the church. The purpose of the church is to show the glory of God and the graciousness of God and the mercy of God and the love of God. But it's really to demonstrate all that to who? To Israel. Now, I'm going somewhere with this because God began to show me some things. Because over the years, I've been, as we've been grown up in the church age, and we've been in the church age for a long period of time now, 2,000 years, because of this, and because of the church misunderstanding the fact that it's really not about the church, but it's about Israel, we've built some theology things that have made things wrong. And because of our wrong theology that doesn't match up with the Scripture, 
We've started to believe some things in the church age that God never, ever said. And actually, we believe things that were opposite of what Jesus said. And on top of that, it has changed how we govern ourselves in our churches. And the focus of our churches has been something that has been totally unbiblical. And I want to be used tonight to begin to let God begin to speak to you to show you what the church really should look like. Through what God's been showing me in my Ezekiel study, I'm putting together now a new series of messages. I preach twice a year at a church in Virginia and also in Michigan. I go to regular times to these churches, and they always say, whatever God's shown you last, you know, bring it. That's what I want you to come preach. And just within the last few weeks, God has begun to open my eyes to what the church's real purpose is and what the church is really supposed to look like with an understanding of Israel. And it's begun to really get me excited about this next series that I'm going to be preaching starting this fall at churches. I'm going to give you a taste of it tonight, though. You see, I'm going to read how I put it in my notes. Because the church has missed God's eternal purpose for Israel. And since much of the church has been taught that they are the new Israel, and that the church as a whole has bought into a church growth focus that is unbiblical, I want to take you tonight to show you what Jesus really had to say about the church. By the way, um, for the sake of time, write this down and go back and add it to the notes for what we just finished. Write down Isaiah 48, verses 1 through 11. Actually, I, I can't just say to go there. I have to read it to you. Go back to Isaiah 48. I want to touch one more thing on God's plan for Israel and why he's not done with them, and then we'll get into this next part. Look at Isaiah 48, verses 1 through 11. Isaiah 48, verses 1 through 11. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city, and they say them, stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them, then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. In other words, I told you before it was going to happen what was going to happen. Because I know that you are obstinate, and your necks are as iron sinew, and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you. Lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see all this. And will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, and you have never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. What he says to him is, is all the stuff that you've seen happen, you remember I told you way, way back that it was going to happen. So that when it did happen, you wouldn't say, my idol did it. I told you before it happened. And by the way, that's one of the greatest proofs that God is God and the Bible is true. It's the prophecies of the Old Testament that have come true. Every single one that has been written to be fulfilled prior to our time. Just in the same way, the future ones are going to literally be fulfilled. 
And he's saying to them now, I'm going to do something in your future now, and I'm going to tell you now about it. And if we were to take the time and go to Ezekiel 39, you'll see that he said he's going to take them from all the nations in the last days, bring them back into their land, and erase their sin, and put his spirit within them and move them to follow his decrees. And we're seeing the beginning of Ezekiel 37. If you remember Ezekiel 37, which we'll get to later in our study of Jesus and come get us before then. But if in Ezekiel 37, he's given the, the prophecy of the valley of the dry bones. And he said, these bones are the house of Israel. He said, preach to him. Preach to him. And he does. So Ezekiel starts to preach to him. And the bones miraculously start getting up. And they start getting together. Knee bone connected to the shin bone. You know the song. And then skin started, sinew started getting up. And the muscles and the skin and they came to life right in front of Ezekiel, but they had no breath in them. And then he's told to prophesy the breath into them, and they came alive in that way. They were up moving around, but they didn't have the Spirit of God within them. We're in that part where Ezekiel 37 is being done in our day. Since 1948, the nation of Israel miraculously. Have you ever seen the pictures of the Holocaust and all the bones piled up of the Jews? The nation came back to life. How in the world? When the whole world has been against them, people have been trying to wipe them off the face of the earth for the whole of history. How are they still here? How did they become a nation again? How are they able to win against all those enemies around them? How are they still there? Because God said so. And there ain't anybody that can say, well, this is because of this or this. No, plain and simple, God said so. God has said this all along. And the church... Unfortunately, for most of the church age has been taught that the church is the new Israel and that God is done with the Jews. You'd be amazed how many Christian denominations are pro-Palestine right now and angry that those Jews are kicking those people out of their land. They don't understand the scriptures. And listen, folks, because of this wrong understanding of God's purpose for Israel, which some people are now starting to come alive to because looking, they're looking at the prophecies and they're understanding, they're seeing some things and going, well, maybe God did meet it when he wrote it in the Old Testament. But because of this, it, there have been some mindsets that have crept into the church, even churches that believe that God's not done with Israel. And I want to show you some of them. And one of them is the church growth movement. The church has been taught that the church is to focus on growth. And I don't know about your church, but I can promise you that most of the people think that the church should be focusing on, I'm going to say it nicely, buildings, budgets, and butts in the pew. All right? We've been taught to grow the church. Yeah, Jesus not only taught us to abide, listen closely to what Jesus actually said about the church age. Go with me to Matthew chapter 16, first of all, verses 13 through 23. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 23. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of John, is what that means, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now we're going to keep reading, but I need to stop and clarify something here. Look at what happens here. He says, Who do people say that I am? And they said, well, they think you're Jeremiah or Ezekiel, one of the prophets. And he said, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the one that was prophesied. You're the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Johnson. Just threw that in. <laughs> son of John. Just, let it, just deal with it, folks. It just is what it is. Blessed are you, Simon Johnson. Flesh and blood hasn't opened your eyes by my Father in heaven. And I'm going to change your name now from Simon to Rockman. He'd already told him earlier when he met him, you're Simon, one day you're going to be called Peter. At this moment, when he made his profession of his faith that God gave him, he says, you're Peter now. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, unfortunately, many people have been taught that the church was built on Peter. But if you actually go to the Greek here, you'll notice that when he calls him Peter, that's in the masculine. And then when he says, on this rock, I will build my church, the word rock is in the feminine, can't be Peter. So what is the rock that Jesus is going to build his church on? His statement, his profession of his faith. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. When God opens our eyes to the truth and we understand that Jesus is the one that God had prophesied would be the one who would die for our sins, rise from the dead, cover our, our, our debt. We become a part of the church. And listen to what Jesus says. I will build my church. We in the church age have been working to build the church. When Jesus said, not your job. Oh, look what happens next. He says, you're Peter, and on this rock, your profession, your faith, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Oh, we sit around thinking that, that the world's winning. Not according to Jesus. His church is fine. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Isn't that interesting? He strictly said, oh, by the way, don't tell anybody who I am. Now, at this moment, that seems like a crazy thing to say. You think that we would say, man, somebody got it finally. Let's get this message out. No, at that time, it wasn't time for God to do what God's going to do. Look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem now, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The same guy that just said, you're the Christ, is now rebuking the Christ. Saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Folks, I want to show you some scriptures tonight. And I want to let, let the Spirit of God begin to speak to you about what the real purpose of the church is. And we should not be focusing on getting bigger and growing the church. Jesus said, first and foremost, I'm going to build my church. He said to us that we're going to be his witnesses. We know that, right? But let's go back to Matthew chapter 7 and look at what Jesus said about what he was doing. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate that is wide 
and the way is easy, that leads to destruction. And those who enter it or enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are how many? We don't want to hear that. We want to be like Peter and say, may it never be, Lord. We want big churches. We want to have massive amounts. Of, we want to change the world for Christ. That sounds real good to our flesh, doesn't it? We wonder why our big churches are so full of people that don't know the Lord. Jesus said that the people that are going to actually be of this are going to be few. Well, we'll keep reading. Go to John 15. Look at John 15, verses 18 through 21. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they don't know him who sent me. So Jesus said, wide's the path that goes to destruction, and many go that way. Narrows the road that goes to eternal life, and it's a hard one. And few there be that find it. Oh, and by the way, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. What, by the way, has anybody noticed over the years in this church age, in this church growth movement, trying to focus on growing our churches and increasing our budgets and increasing our numbers and increasing our buildings? Has anybody ever noticed that we start to focus on how can we make this palatable? Have you ever noticed how the church today is focused on being seeker friendly? When Jesus said, if you preach the truth, first off, I'm going to build my church. That's my job. But understand this, the world won't like it. Go to John chapter 16. Just turn over one chapter. Look at verses 1 through 4. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. And they'll do these things because they haven't known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you so that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. By the way, I promise you in parts of the world where people are actually being killed for their faith, the churches aren't seeking to be seeker friendly. They're just being the witness that Jesus told them to be and letting Jesus build his church. Even if that means they die in the process. Like I said, we've been told to be his witnesses, that he would empower us to witness and that we were to bring his message, message to all the world. You know, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, right? We know Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you're going to be my witnesses all over the globe. But as with Ezekiel, he told us that they may hear or they may refuse to hear. Now, I'm going to just help you out a little bit, and I'm going to say this to you in love. How many of you, and I'm not asking for a show of hands, I just want you to let the Lord talk to you. How many of you 
when you shared the gospel and the person didn't respond positively or they didn't get saved or they didn't believe, thought, maybe I'm doing it wrong. We've all fallen prey to that mindset because we still think it has something to do with us. That word helped grow the church. Jesus says, that's my job. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at what Paul says in verses 5 through 7. He said, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted. Apollos watered. Who gave the growth? God. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we're God's fellow workers in your God's field, God's building. He said, look, one planted, another watered. If there was growth, God did it. Nowadays, when we have a church where God may be doing something and there's growth, the other churches want to quickly copy the method because we think the power is in the method. No, sometimes the church grew to 3,000 in one sermon. A little later, the church in Jerusalem grew to 5,000. But if you get to the few chapters later, he then scattered them. He's not as concerned with local church numbers. The church is growing. God's doing his work across the globe. That's one of the benefits I have as a traveling preacher. I get to see God at work all around. The problem is we've been taught to grow our church. I want to set you free tonight. I wouldn't worry about that. Be his witness. What did he tell the church to focus on? Does anybody know? By the way, I'm going to remind you of a question I've asked you before. When Paul wrote his letters to the churches, how many times did he say, how many are you running now? Not once. Oh, let me ask you another question that may surprise you. How many times when he wrote a letter to the church did he say, how many have you reached for Christ? Never. He does say in Philemon chapter 1, verse 6, I pray that you be active in sharing your faith so that you experience all the joy of the Lord. Did you catch that? Pray you're active in sharing your faith. He didn't even say whether or not you'd be successful in it. Actually, when Paul wrote to the churches, he only prayed two things. One, that they would grow to know Jesus more and more. And that they would love each other in the process. That's all he cared about. My question for you is, in your church, because you all come from different churches, my question is, are you all focused on growing your church? How we can get more people here? Or are you focused on them, the ones that are here getting closer to Jesus and loving each other in the process? Jesus said, you do that, I'll build my church. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. See, the reason we got caught off guard and we've all of a sudden focused on this church growth movement is because we've been taught that it's about the church now. It's not about the church. The church has always been about Israel and God's glory and making them jealous and us just thanking him for letting us be a part of it. That's why, by the way, at the end of chapter 11, when he says God's not done with Israel, he's not done with Israel, he's not done with Israel, he's just saved you Gentiles to make Israel jealous. That's why in chapter 12, Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. In other words, because God in his mercy has allowed you to be a part of what he's doing in Israel. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices which is your reasonable service or your spiritual act of worship. Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, 
You'll be transformed by the daily renewing of your mind, and then you'll know what God's will is. And then he goes on in that chapter to say in the very next verse, don't let anybody think of yourself more highly than you ought, but each with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that you've been given. If this is your role, just do that. If this is your role, just do that. And he goes on to loving one another and forgiving one another and not avenging people or, you know, getting revenge. Folks, all along, our attitude just should be, Lord, thank you that you saved me. Lord, you've done it to show your grace and show your mercy, and I thank you for it. But you're also doing it so that Israel would understand how good you are. And I pray for them, that they would see it too. Instead, our theology has been, it's about us now. And he's done with them. And like you just said, we then taught everybody how to go work hard for Jesus and build his church. And we fought with each other over methods we fought with each other on how to get bigger. And when the church didn't get bigger, we fired our pastors. Have we not? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, you preached it wrong. Is that what he said? Not at all. He said, in their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Can't be any more clear. This ministry been given is from God. And if they get it or if they don't get it, they get it, God opened their eyes. If they don't get it, God drew them, but Satan blinded and they listened. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, back up to chapter 3. Look at verses 4 through 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. If you have been used of God to have anybody come to faith, what did you bring to the table? Nothing. Our sufficiency comes from God. Like I've told you before, I walk out of Bible studies now, and I walk out of preaching at churches now, not examining how I did. Boy, I used to sit around worrying about whether or not I'd do a good job. And then I'd go home and say, well, how'd I do? How'd I do? Now I just come here and believe that he's going to do it. I do my study. I do my preparation. He guides me in that. And when it comes to teaching and preaching, I'm leaving it to him. And if you get anything, if you don't, Now all the people that are listening online are saying, what did he just do? <laughs> Should have been here. All right, go to 2 Corinthians, back up to chapter 2. Look at verses 14 through 17. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 17. Thanks be to God, Paul says, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. 
And who is sufficient for these things? We're not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. By the way, he answered his own question in the verse we just read before that. Who's sufficient? Wherever we go, when we allow the light of Christ to shine through us, to some, we smell really good. You ever run into somebody and just sensed this person's a believer? You know what I'm talking about? And you just kind of knew right away. And man, you were just so glad you met them and you hugged and you just, brother, sister, you could just tell. But there's other people that, man, you get in their presence, your hope, they say, pardon my French, but they're just not comfortable in your presence. They're just, they know, they don't even want you around. Buddy, when I sit on airplanes like I did this past yesterday, flying from Detroit to Atlanta and Atlanta to Orlando, and even riding in the tow truck that took my vehicle from the airport to here because it died on the way here uh, when I got here this morning, I was the aroma of Christ wherever I went. Some people loved it. Some people didn't. And I didn't sit around trying to get everybody saved. As I sat in that tow truck last night talking to Carlos for the whole ride from the Narcusi 7-Eleven that, praise God, when my car died and the fuel pump went out, it was coasting right into the 7-Eleven. And I had chicken wings and diet soda to keep me company while I waited for the tow truck at midnight. As I got in the truck, I want to know if Carlos knows him, but I'm not going to say, hey, Carlos, are you a Christian? How can I lead you to Jesus tonight? I would just squeeze and sniff and thump and make some statements every now and then as I was just talking to him and asking him about his wife and his children and family and all that. And I would put these little hints out that let him know that I was a believer. And he was good at blocking every single one. <laughs> he was gifted. I'll be honest with you. It wasn't like, I don't want to talk about it. He would just change the conversation. I'd throw another one out a few miles down the road. He'd def- he had Wonder Woman bracelets on. He would, nothing got by him. He, but you know what? That's okay. I didn't walk out of there thinking, man, I should have done this. Sorry. Maybe I should have said that. See, that mindset thinks that it's up to us to build the church. It's not. We're one plants, another one may water. But it's God. If Carlos ever comes to faith, and I pray he does, if Carlos ever comes to faith, it's because God did it. Too many of us have been in those evangelism trainings where we've been taught you have to start with this page of the tract and get them to pray the prayer by the end of the tract. Don't get me started. (laughs) Expect resistance. Oh, but listen closely. Ezekiel was told, don't be rebellious like them. In other words, I've got something I want you to do, God said to Ezekiel. You're going to see when we get to chapter 3 in Ezekiel and the dealing with the man on the watchtower and the fact that he's supposed to blow the warning when the trouble is coming. We'll get to that. And what are the consequences when we don't do what he's asked us to do? See, we could easily say, well, God's going to build his church. Let's all just go party. Oh, no, no, no. We each have a role. We each have part that's play. I say to you, don't you be rebellious. Go to Ezekiel chapter 2. Look at verses 8 through 10. We'll see how far we get in this tonight in the seven minutes we have left. Ezekiel chapter 2, look at verses 8 through 10. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Oh, so by the way, um, was the message that Ezekiel was given to preach a feel-good message? 
We'll deal with that later on next week and how nowadays a lot of preachers think they're just going to focus on the positive. There's some famous preachers out there that say they don't even deal with sin because that's negative. We're just going to talk about the positive. Listen closely. Jesus died to take away sin, right? To remove the penalty for sin. You can't share the gospel and not mention sin. But that's next week. By the way, like I said, God has a role for each of us. He's very good at getting you to respond to his desire for your life, by the way. Ask Jonah. Remember Jonah had been given a specific role by God to go and preach to a specific people. Keep in mind, you haven't been called by God to go share the gospel with everybody. But doesn't it say go into all the world? That's true. But is he expecting each of us to go into all? No. Paul, I want you to go to the Gentiles. Paul says, I want to go into Asia. I'll get you into Asia another way, but you just you listen to where I'm going. How about Missia, Lord? Nope, not Missia. He learned how to listen to the Spirit, and he went wherever God led him. And you go and share with whoever God's put on your heart to share. Don't be rebellious. Jonah was told to go to the Ninevites, and Jonah didn't just say no. He said, heck no. <laughs> was God good at getting him to where he wanted him to be? Sure was. Go to Psalm 32. Go to Psalm 32. Some of you have been resistant to be obedient to a call of God on your life because you don't think you can do it. See, you bought into this lie that it's up to us. The fact that you can't do it might be exactly why God picked you. Oh, I can tell you it's exactly why God picked you. Oh, by the way, the people that think they can do it, he's going to have to take you through a journey to show you you can't do it. So you that think you can't do it, you're already ahead of schedule in the learning process. But don't be disobedient because you say you can't do it. In Psalm 32, David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man who, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him, for you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you, is what God says, and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. But then God says, don't be like the horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. David said, when I was resistant to your call, I was miserable until I surrendered and did what you said. Guys, don't be like the horse or the mule that you got to put a bit in its mouth to get it where you want it to go. God's able to get you where he wants you to go. Who, Matthew 23, verse 12 says this, Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Listen to me. I'm going to say it one more time because a lot of people have missed something here. 
Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. You're going to be humbled either way. Humility is in your future. Either you say, God, I cannot do it, but you said you want me to, and I trust that you will give me your grace, or he will show you that only he can do it. Next week, we're going to look at this scroll. We're going to look at this book that he was told to eat and the message that he was given. And we're going to be talking about the message that we've been given. And listen closely. The message we've been given is a lot more than Jesus died for your sins. The message we've been given in the church is a lot more than Jesus died for your sins. Especially if, what is the purpose of the church age again? To make Israel jealous. Therefore, if we in the church have been given the responsibility to preach the good news... And to preach, as Paul calls it, the whole counsel of God. We need to know what's coming and be able to share that as well. And so, folks, let me set you free. When your church gets all caught up in how can we get more people here, lovingly speak for truth and say Jesus didn't ask us to focus on that. He said he'll build his church and that we're to focus on growing in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that the eyes of your hearts will be open, that you'll know him better. And that we're to focus on making sure we love each other. And he will, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. And then God reminded me in this day and age of church growth that Jesus made an interesting statement in Luke chapter 18, verse 8. He said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? On the earth. The message to the church in the last part of the church age in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, the church in Laodicea, you're rich, you think you're rich and have need of nothing. You've got your buildings and budgets and butts in the pew. But you don't realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. By the way, I don't know if you caught that. Those are all words throughout the Bible used to describe the lost. When Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock in Revelation 3.20. If you'll open, I'll come in and eat with you and you with me. He wasn't calling out to the people on the street. He was speaking to the people in the church who had bought into the lie that the church age was about church growth and getting bigger and more people here, increasing our membership. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. The wide path leads to destruction. The narrow road leads to eternal life. Few find it. Oh, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And I never said the church age was going to be one of massive growth. Oh, there's going to be lots of people throughout history and throughout the church age have come to faith. And there have been. Multitudes of people have been saved across the globe. But the whole attitude of growing our local church was never in God's plan. Just be faithful to do what he wants to do through you and watch what he does for his glory. Thanks so much for coming. We'll see you next Tuesday.